Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Talking housing now and the housing affordability crisis is everywhere to be seen, but there is still no agreement on how to solve the problem of escalating rents and a lack of housing options more generally. The federal government's $10 billion housing package passed the parliament last week after the Greens gave their support to it and along the way extracting an additional billion dollars in direct spending on social and affordable housing. State governments are making announcements too about how they will boost the number of new houses being built and uh, Dave Nichols is with us. He's Professor of Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne and yeah, Dave, what's your your take on the housing situation? Sucks. Yeah. Okay, great. See you later. Um I think that um, there's uh, so big, big, big issues, obviously, and I think Max Chandler Mather kind of nailed it when he talked about how that the present government is a little bit uh, mired in wanting to appear. I'm going to, I'm paraphrasing or, or I'm, I'm extrapolating, but wanting to appear credible to business interests who are, you know, who have a lot tied up in in the increasing, you know, just property values and um, property, um, you know, the, the in increasing amount of money that can be extracted from, from property in a housing crisis. So you are a little bit stuck between two. And once again, the Greens, I'm sorry to, to get this way. And I think that Chandler made the kind of, he kind of acknowledges this, but, you know, the, the Greens can be sitting in this, in this position, um, uh, pushing Labor into certain corners um, and making labor do certain things because the greens don't don't have to be accountable to those to those property interests but in a way labor if want, labor wants to be a um a credible federal you know uh option uh, across the board to people across the board then it it has to uh uh be this way which is just sort of a uh, a sad uh it's a sad situation that we find ourselves in in um, in 2023, and so I think Chandler May, once again, made the you know fairly obvious point that we're in an absolute housing crisis situation. It's the worst that Australia has ever had, and there are all these kinds of um, issues, particularly uh, the the idea of making of bringing in public housing or bringing in social housing. Uh, as and making affordable housing happen is kind of counter to a you know the system that prevails in a country where um, everybody's you know main or people who own houses usually that's their their main uh, wealth and they want to see their wealth you know increase so if you own a, you know it's just a big divide that the country is in and it is of course often typified quite reasonably as a, a generational divide and uh, there's you know no sign of of that really changing anytime soon the there's a lot of talk about this this 10 or whatever it is 10 plus billion dollar package not really coming online as they say for five years or so so you know the the if there's any relief to be felt it's not going to be felt until you know quite a quite a way down the track um, that's uh, that's a bad situation for everybody, uh, and uh, you know I don't think anybody could really be happy with that. So I, you know, I think that the Greens, um, 
Odd, it was odd that they made so much of the rent freeze idea and then capitulated on that um, in the final, you know, at the end. I don't they call it pragmatism, and I guess you know. Um, well, they're not about pragmatism, though. Where, where does the pragmatism? Maybe come they in? are now. Well, maybe they are. I suppose if we look at the result, I mean, this is a sign of Parliament working to some extent, I guess, isn't it, with governments having to negotiate with yes. um, with cross you know cross benches and, and the like. And I mean, the Liberal Party didn't come on board with this housing pass- package, so I think surprise, surprise. as a result of these negotiations, it's resulted in sort of more money towards affordable mm. social housing than there would have been otherwise. But on that sort of matter of the generational divide, which is absolutely true, with sort of more people being pushed into renting, do you think that will persist, or we'll start to see that shift where more people in kind of older age brackets who don't have a lot of their wealth or any wealth in housing will see more of a need for things like measures to address the rental crisis. You mean, so by older people, um, do you mean that there'll be a pressure on the on the government as this expands? Yeah, that's or? right. Or, and not sort of a, um, an automatic assumption that people of a certain generation will support, uh, you know, policies that might be appeasing business sort of property mm. interest mm. and that kind of thing. Well, I guess that there's also a sense in which I think a, a lot of people feel that over the last, well, I'm going to say 20 years, 30 years, um, there's been a drift from the assumption that you would end up, and I know a lot of people, um, you know, under 30, who have basically taken the attitude, I will never own mm. a house. Whereas, you know, when um, when I was under 30, I think the basic assumption was that, you know, that would that would almost, almost, it would come to you, you know, it'd almost be, and certainly um, I knew people when I was in my early 20s who bought houses because it was cheaper than paying rent. Uh, I still, that still blows me away to think about that. Obviously, that's a long time ago. But the, um, there's, there's been a huge shift in the, in the way that, uh, in, in, to, is this, this might be the most obvious thing said on uh, on Triple R today, but there's been a huge <laughs> shift in um, in property value and things that were once um, super cheap uh, are now, um, you know, basically essentially unaffordable and the sort of things that uh, you know you you can spend your whole life uh, trying to trying to pay off uh, quite for quite small um, you know uh, dwellings. In, um, in places that are deemed desirable. I mean, you know, and it's funny, I think, you know, in the time that I've been involved in, in this area, in, the, in planning, you know, um, you know, academic studies of, of planning and, and so on, I think there's, there's long been an assumption that something's got to change, you know, there's got to be some kind of change, you know, and I think that previously uh, society, Australian society, the Australian economy had a boom and bust kind of thing, and 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 the the bust was kind of the reset. Things would things would change then. Things would you know um, perhaps uh, there'd be a bit of a return to um, what, for instance, what we're talking about a kind of um, housing affordability, or um, you know there'd be a a kind of a, a new uh, normal. But um, that has not happened, and it's uh, so we're in this just weird, crappy situation that. Uh, even if this um, multi-billion-dollar package does do something towards helping it, it's not going to um, do it, you know, fast at all. And I think probably people, if people, if younger people, if we're talking about younger people, or even you know slightly older people, middle-aged people, um, actually do want to uh, own property and see that as a, as a way towards you know um, consolidating and and retaining their wealth then um, they're going to seek other solutions. And uh, I think we've seen a little bit of that in the, um, 
you know, during the pandemic, that kind of that tree change kind of thing. So there are people who are just sort of shrugging and walking away from uh, the the dream of owning uh, property in the city and maybe finding other options. But also, I think more commonly, people have just given up on the idea of owning property. Unless you know, I mean, and then that's where the rent stuff is is really important. And we're speaking to Dave Nichols. We're talking housing this morning, twenty five minutes past nine on Triple R. And I think this is where, you know, I I know, and it's only anecdotal, but it just seems to be everywhere now. People saying my rent's gone up X hundred dollars. You know, it's just, and it's coming from nowhere. It's on on wages that are are staying the same, and 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 you know, that question of what am I going to do for five years, assuming that in yep, five years there will be a fix, but we're not I mean, we're not quite that, sure. That I mean, affordable, by the way, is always in inverted commas it because is those a, places mm. still are pretty expensive, you know, yeah. as, at current projections. So where, I mean, where will we see when when the housing comes, um, yeah. build it and they will definitely come yeah, in yeah. their hundred standing at the front wanting to rent it. Yeah. Um, but when it eventually comes, where will it be, do you think? I mean, uh, where I will it be? Is a, that is a great question. And I think... You know, like, okay, so you guys know I love to look to history. Um, you know, the, the the last time there was major slum landlordism, which I'm going to say is kind of what we're experiencing now. It's not just high property prices. It's uh, landlords saying, well, we don't have to fix that property or make it habitable. We, we don't They're need, not going to complain. Know, we don't need to, you know, because yeah. people are desperate for somewhere to live. Um, that was uh, in part solved by, or at least the government solution to that was to um, to build massive amounts of public housing. I mean, that is that's problem. I'm talking Victoria. That's problematic in itself. Uh, in all kinds of ways, it was problematic, but it certainly uh, was an attempt to fix that problem. In the uh, where are people going to where they where are these places going to be built? I mean, you know, um, the the solution in the past has been build large new areas close to places where people can work or want to work or you know pair industry with housing and that was um in the 50s and 60s that was um, blue collar industry so that was pair manufacturing with um with uh, new new suburbs uh not quite sure if that you know is it's necessary for that kind of arrangement this time around but you know i think we're still seeing once again to talk about the pandemic i think we're still seeing the kind of wash up from um the pandemic in terms of um you know work from home kind of stuff and whether whether people could you know, legitimately work from home um, in anywhere around, and so there could be all kinds of infill. The infill uh, in in Melbourne is fascinating to me, uh, and the and the projects that are uh, controversially not quite happening yet um, are fascinating to me as well. So, it, uh, and a lot of that, by the way, comes from the legacy of um, blue collar. Um, you know, the the manufacturing. Um, past that Melbourne that once meant so much in Melbourne but where new where new places could be I mean they could be on the fringe but I think that's probably going to be a bit on the nose uh they may be you know the the present government has shown interest in developing in regional centres uh you know that that was part of the thing with the Commonwealth Games you know that now now defunct but the Commonwealth Games idea was um build new facilities and kind of boost the regional centres so maybe the State government, if it has a say in, in where the federal government directs things, which I think it will, um, will will say, well, what about Bendigo? That kind of that kind of thing, and and um, uh, you know, augment those uh, existing cities with mass, you know, great infrastructure and you know, beautiful and places that people do actually want to live. Um, maybe expand those. 
But nevertheless, it's you know I think it's all up in the air. It hasn't really been talked about yet. And, and what about the model as well? I mean, it's been reported that Victoria's sort of big build of, of social and affordable housing is, is sort of well behind schedule. What about the, the model of kind of incentivising developers to, to factor in affordable housing to yeah. other developments as well? I mean, is that part of the problem here or, or do you see that as a, a productive path to go down? Where does that sort of fit within the mix? Yeah, where does it fit? I mean, the from, from so from what I can see... Uh, developers are really unhappy about that whole mm. thing. But, you know, of course, uh, you know, developers are a particular kind of, you know, particular breed of animal that's kind of um, instinctively wants to maximise its um, its its uh, profit on, on everything. And uh, so I suppose that developers can probably go, well, if we uh, dig our heels in for a couple of years on this and, and try to negotiate less and less of this kind of... Um, uh, style of housing, then um, we can uh, we can have our way, and we shall we shall see what happens there. I mean, I think that that seems to me to be um, highly short sighted. But you know, um, I'm I'm not a developer. No. No. <laughs> you can, That's you, a takeaway. <laughs> one thing. If you learn one thing. That's the other obvious thing you said on Dave Nichols is not a, a property developer and hasn't been a property de- developer for the past 12 years of mm-hmm. coming on this it's program. That's true. true. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we haven't got a solution, but that's kind of normal for our conversations, isn't it? I mean, we don't uh, really come up with anything. Well, you know, we, no, why, why would we... Why would we even want that? Yeah, exactly. What would we talk about next time? <laughs> exactly. Uh, thank you for uh, being such a great guest. And, you know, Dylan is keeping this program going. Mm, I'm stepping mm. off, as they say in broadcasting. For some reason, it's like stepping off the show. It's like a train that keeps going. I yeah, think it's kind of yeah. like that. Jumping and off and rolling. Ju- yeah, yeah or, right. <laughs> or as they say, a light. Do you a light? A light. Mind the gap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not falling down that gap. So, yes, we will chat again for sure. Um, Yeah, thank you for coming in and, um, yeah, being our guest for for so long. Well, thank you so much, Carly. You'll be sadly missed, I think, uh, going forward. So Yeah. It's been great. We can we can catch up and talk talk like this over coffee, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah we can sometime. Do that. Yeah, yeah okay. be good. Right. Yeah, still won't come up with any solutions, but that's good. No, no, no solutions. <laughs> no solutions. Solutions. Uh, thanks. They, they never work. <laughs> Triple R. It's always a good day when we get to have a conversation with adjunct professor Muriel Bamplett. Muriel is a Yorta Yorta and Jaja Wurrung woman who has been CEO of VACA, the Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency, for more than two decades. Muriel's uh, also part of around 30 working groups, including the Aboriginal Treaty Working Group. And there's a lot to speak with Muriel about, uh, including the Uruk Justice Commissioner's recommendations from earlier this month and also the voice referendum that is less than a month away now. And Muriel, it's wonderful to have you back on Triple R and on the Grapevine. Good morning. Oh, thank you very much. And obviously, um, really, really proud to be associated with Triple R. You, you do such an amazing job. Oh, yeah, and it's um, our relationships with people like you and your organisation that means that we're absolutely connected and, and part of community, which is uh, a wonderful place to be, Muriel. And, uh, I mean, we wanted to check in on you for various reasons. Um, there's a lot happening and obviously we can't get to everything, but we did hear from Victoria's Uruk Justice Commission uh, earlier in the month and, and if people don't know the Uruk Justice Commission, it's the first truth-telling body in Australia and it was set up 
to share and record stories about the impact of colonisation on First Nations people in this state. And, I mean, what's your reflections hearing now from from Uruk and, and, and hearing and seeing what the recommendations are? Look, I mean, the initial comments were, um, did we push the government far enough to really, you know, reform things better, particularly um, for juvenile justice and child protection? And so, um, but having read through the report now, you can see that, you know, I think the truth-telling is really about hearing about what happened in the past, looking at how do we actually start to look at um, what the current and contemporary issues are and how do we actually move forward. So... I think um, we've still got a long way to go if you look at what's happening in Canada and reparations for spook. I think um, we've looked at reparations for stolen genes, but I think it still doesn't pick up in, in you know, Victoria, obviously, contemporary removals and what's happening for children and young people. So we've still got a long way to go. We've got $40 million commitment from the Premier to really transfer decision-making to Aboriginal, which is the first in Australia. So I think there's a body of work that the Truth and Justice Commission or the um, Truth-Telling Commission that we Victoria um, has really, really tr- laid out um, a really good blueprint for the future, but much more work to be done, obviously, um, you know, as far as, you know, child protection, guardianship, transfer decision-making, cultural relevance, um, improving institutions, such a, such a body of work. But then, obviously, the juvenile justice, um, changing the Bail Act, you know, raising the age of criminal intent. It, um, it, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of work that we still need to do. Yeah, and, I mean, I was just sort of reflecting on this second interim report from the Europe Justice Commission, and I suppose the value of having these kinds of mechanisms and institutions in place that, you know, uh, are there to um, serve as a mechanism for truth-telling, I suppose, to feed into then government policies and decision-making, which in, in some form is what we're um, looking at with the voice to Parliament. Well, that, that's, of course, something that needs to be enshrined in the Constitution. But based on, on what we've seen from the Europe Justice Commission so far, I mean, how kind of... Uh, what have we learned, I suppose, in the, the, the benefits of these kinds of processes to then feed into the, the many areas that, that are in need of change that you've just touched on? Yeah, look, I mean, if you think about back to the Yolaru statement from the heart, it was about truth-telling, it was about treaty, but it was also about voice. And so I think Victoria um, has really sort of taken the lead as far as beginning the discussions on treaty and we're very much in the formal process of negotiating what that framework and rolling that framework out. And so we've done that. We're doing the truth-telling and, um, you know, hopefully we'll get a version of what voice will look like. We already have voice, I think, in many of the agreements and many of the forums that we have in Victoria. So I think um, what we're seeing is that Aboriginal people um, can come up with solutions come up with responses. When I first started in this sector, there were many inquiries, but there was no Aboriginal voice in many of those inquiries. There was no Aboriginal input into the policies of government. And so we have seen a change. I think for Yuruk, for me, having grown up um, with my parents both coming off missions and reserves, um, with hearing so many terrible stories of Victoria's history around missions and reserves, around, you know, massacre sites. Um, 
I, I think I drew up with, in a time where um, it was so much racism and discrimination. And so for me, I think um, it was around how does this report really pick up what's happened to Aboriginals? And, you know, um, the fact that many of the, um, the, you know, sort of scalps of Aboriginal people are held in Canberra as bounty, you know, that were collected by bounty hunters. So to me, I, I guess... I'm very emotive. I wanted to capture that. Um, mm. Victoria would, Victorians would understand how um, what happened in the past and the injustices and why we don't have the same fabric of culture as what the Northern Territory of Queensland and Western Australia have, where the culture is very much on, still on display. Yeah, I mean, with the way that you uh, chart that that progress and the change, Muriel, in in your lifetime and and in your involvement in in working, you know, in 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 political life, really, uh, and you, you know, I said at the outset that you're on, uh, you know, dozens of, of working groups, including the Aboriginal Treaty Working Group, and I mean, with regards to the change that the referendum, the voice, is offering, um, I mean, what's your how are you seeing the the conversation around that, or the understanding around that uh, playing out in 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 the community that that you're in, but also more broadly? Yeah, look, I was at the march yesterday, um, and you know, like for me, um, I walked out with Linda Burning, Jill Gallagher, um, all Marcus Stewart, and so many. Aboriginal people, and um, when we were walking out, I was clapping everybody that was there supporting us because, to me, I, it just sort of... It's something that you want to thank people for because, you know, giving a voice is so much up to, you know, non-Aboriginal Australia to sort of um, vote for us. And so yesterday there were many stories, you know, personal stories about what it meant to individuals, but also politically there was, you know, there were so many advocates that spoke about so, but but um, what, what what you get it got was a genuine feeling for people to do the right thing and, and why it was important to the fabric of Australia and what was sending what message we were sending to other countries. But um, and I marched and then I, I walked back through Chinatown and areas like that and I thought, gosh, have we done enough? Because Australia, Australia is very multicultural and I thought, have we done enough to engage um, those that are not in the are we targeting too much as well around, you know, big non-Aboriginal people, Australians that live here, but not all, not ethnic communities and very, the merry men people that come from other countries as well. Speaking with Muriel Bamblett, CEO at the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency, about a number of things coming off the back of the release of the Uruk Justice Commission's second interim reports uh, a couple of weeks back and also, of course, ahead of the, the referendum on an Indigenous voice to parliament, which is coming up on the 14th of October. And on, on the matter of, I suppose, governments following through on some of these um, recommendations, such as those that have been laid out by Uruk, I mean, in Victoria, the government has said that they've planned an overhaul of the child protection system and there's been sort of money put towards that as well. In the, the Europe Justice Commission's report, I understand there's been a 12-month time frame put on delivering some of those reforms, which goes beyond just that itself. But from where you sit, how sort of quickly is the government moving on some of these measures that, that you would like to see addressed? Look, I mean, I, I guess clearly we, we've had a, a workshop last, just last week, the Aboriginal Children's Forum, where the Minister, um, Lizzie Blanthorne, attended... 
the secretary of the department actually serious having serious conversations with us about the reform agenda, the work that we need to do. Um, we workshopped with the um, 16 Aboriginal community-controlled organisations from across the state. We looked at the recommendations, what needed to be implemented, what actions. Um, I co-chaired the forum on, on the courts and the role of the courts and so and the justice system and legal. So I think that we're really sort of buckle down, but it's been predominantly driven by Aboriginal. Um, we, we've already on a journey to um, take on guardianship of Aboriginal children. Um, we've been, I've got 200 children that I'm now guardian for, and now we're take on investigations. So I think um, I think the thing, the really big hutch challenge is how do you address a system that's racist? And, and, and I think that's going to be our biggest challenge because it's Every system in the world, there's an over-representation of children in colour. And so we have to look at what is happening at the front end. Why do so many Aboriginal children even begin to end up in the child protection system? We have to understand the racism that exists within our institutions and be able to address that. And I think that's the really biggest challenge from my point of view. And, I mean, I was looking back, um, Muriel, it's at my last show co-hosting um, The Grapevine this morning and it's so great to have you on the on the program. And I was looking back to when we <clears throat> first spoke to you and it was right, right back in 2013, just after Andrew Giacomos was appointed Australia's first Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People. And we had you on to talk about an event canvassing Victorian perspectives on constitutional recognition. And it's a decade on and I, I just just even hearing you reflect now that you're, you're yeah, you are guardian to 200 children and there is just so much work being done everywhere across the across the, the system, I guess, if you put it that way, in adverted commas. And, I mean, there is so much progress. Do you get a sense that that just general people realise how, how much progress we're making and how step by step by step we are trying to get somewhere that's that's more fair, that's more understanding, that's more compassionate. Uh, uh, yeah, what's your sense there about the understanding of the progress? Look, I think a lot of it goes to, you know, the importance of voice. Um, like we have um, some of the best justice systems in, in Australia. We have the best child protection health, many of those areas. And, and that's because, the, you know, Aboriginal people sit at the table and, you know, like, and sit. There's various agreements that we have. We have a health agreement, we have a justice agreement, we have family violence agreements, we have child housing. All those agreements actually mean that Aboriginal voice sit at the table and inform government policy. Now we see Aboriginal policy people sitting at tables informing policy and legislation and practice. And I think it, it goes to the you know, example of how voice makes a difference. Yes, the data is challenging, but what we're seeing is that we're changing. We're getting Aboriginal practice, Aboriginal evidence about what works, and our voice matters. And I think, you know, when the Premier made the statement that we don't want Aboriginal people just sitting at the table, we want Aboriginal people to own the table. And that doesn't mean we want to take over. We just want to be able to have a voice. We just want to be able to put the issues that we're dealing with and what works for our families so that we can get really be much better outcomes. We don't want a we are welfare problem to be solved. We want to be, our communities to be thriving. We want everybody to be proud of us. We want people to see our culture 
display in our nationhood and what we're doing as far as, you know, um, language and culture and ceremony and music and art and all of the things that are really vibrant and rich in Aboriginal communities. Muriel, thank you so much for being with us again this morning and, um, and also for your continued involvement with Triple R. It's, it's always great to speak with you. Yeah, I'm sad that it's your last day, but I... So you know, am I, Muriel. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I bet you would be, Dylan, but anyway, look, um, just big, big thanks so much, so much. Look, and thank you. We've, we've got posters and everything going up about The Voice today, so we're, like, joining Thatcher and other Aboriginal organisations to really get behind Aboriginal people. We well, the start. That was put out, 80% of Aboriginal people support The Voice. So um, we just hope that um, everybody will talk to somebody and really bring, you know, the rest of Australia along on the, on the journey towards The Voice. Absolutely, and we're so grateful to have got the chance to speak to you this morning. Thanks so much, and we'll chat again soon. Thanks so much. Bye. Anonymous Club is a documentary that provides an intimate insight into the inner world of Courtney Barnett as she tours the world and contemplates what it means to be an artist today. It premiered early this year, I believe. It's been kind of having a scattered release all over the world and is now available for you to watch on Doc Play, coinciding with the release of Courtney Barnett's instrumental album, End of the Day, which serves as the film's score. To tell us more about it, we're joined by the film's director, Danny Cohen. Hello. Hello. Good morning. 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 And, um, I mean, tell us about your relationship with Courtney Barnett because it kind of feels like that this film couldn't have been made by anyone else. You've got a friendship and, and a collaborative um, relationship that goes back some time. Yeah, I mean, we uh, met through my partner who was signed to, or still is signed to Milk. Um, and I guess over the years, I sort of started taking photos of Courtney and then moved into doing music videos and we kind of developed this uh, creative collaboration. And then over time, it just moved into um, somehow a documentary. Was that your idea or...? Uh, no, it was actually uh, Courtney and her manager's idea. They kind of uh, had a new tour coming up and they felt like nothing had really been properly documented. And so they asked me if I'd give it a go. Yeah. Like, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I could do that. <laughs> and it was interesting then that you yeah, asked her to keep a, a voice diary. Yeah, so during that process, we were kind of figuring out, you know, what was the best way to document Courtney because Courtney... Uh, is a bit of an introvert and so you know to try and get the best out of her or, or really dig deep um I kind of want to take the pressure off so I thought if we give her a dictaphone then she can kind of record all her thoughts and how she's feeling um without the pressure of a camera on her or an interview or, or all that sort of stuff so and and, and with what you got did you expect no what? not at all no like I mean I mean you know I, I I knew I mean I know Courtney very well now but I I we were really good friends, but we didn't really open up that much. Um, I was really surprised by like Courtney's um, willingness to just bear all. Um, the documentary wouldn't be the same unless you know she kind of really opened up to that level. And when did you get these recordings from her? Like, were they at particular increments, or would you get them sort of immediately? Or when did you get your hands on I'd them? I get them like uh, I guess every couple of months. Mm. I'd kind of grab the dictaphone off her and back them up, and you know change the batteries and um, wipe a card. Um, so everything was a little bit out of sync. So, you know, when I'd hear those back, uh, the Courtney that I'd see on tour and chat to on tour, I'd kind of have two Courtneys, which is like, you know, a couple of months earlier and how she was feeling to, you know, then the day how she, how she actually was feeling. So it was always uh, a little bit out of sync. Um, That's really interesting because she 
does bear all. Like, it's very personal, and it seems like she's going through some really troubling times at certain stages as well. How did you, I suppose, manage that as both a friend and a, a director when you'd hear those things? Uh, yeah, it was really tricky because um, a lot of the stuff, you know, I'd hear, like, do I, do I talk to Courtney about this as a friend? Um, maybe she doesn't want to talk about it right now. If she's in a great mood today, like, why, why would I bring up this sort of stuff? Mm. And I guess it was just like a, a constant sort of moral dilemma of um, how supportive to be and maybe show your support in other ways that don't need to directly bring up exactly what she's spoken about. Um, yeah, tricky times. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I imagine that, as you say, with, without the camera there and you you know, I, I, look, I, I'm not caught in Bunnett. I don't know how she held the phone or whatever to tell, to, to speak in the way that she did it intimately and which we, which we hear uh, as part of the documentary. But this idea that, you know, maybe she's alone, um, maybe it's at night, you could hear a yawn in different kind of uh, audio takes that you, it is different to being on the road out in front of people and, you know, you get different Thought, we all have different thoughts, don't we, when we're alone totally. versus when you're, a, you know, when she's a very well-known person out and about. And I, you, you pulled those together with vision of her out and about, some of it. And, you know, how did you go about doing that? Well, uh, you know, once we had all the recordings, uh, my editor and I, Ben Hall, um, we kind of saw a pretty clear story. And so we kind of, we would build a story just purely based off the audio recordings and then try and find footage that matched it or contrasted it or, you know, matched it in the time that she was feeling that too. So it was just a sort of balancing act to try and tell the full story while also trying to show a story visually. Um, That's interesting that the narrative kind of emerged once you could listen to all those audio recordings, I suppose, in one. As, as a, a, a director, like, did you have particular, uh, you know, music documentaries that you were looking to for inspiration or thinking about what kind of music doco you wanted to make? Because there are a range of different approaches to this kind of thing. Yeah, I didn't really have any in mind. Like, Ben and I loved um, the Dylan doc, um, Don't Look Back, but, we, yeah, we didn't really edit to one in particular. Um, it was just such a strange format to be working from, to not have interviews, to not, uh, you know, be able to re-record anything and just kind of try and be as pure as possible by using, you know, the 16ml film um, paired with the dictaphone recordings too, which was like, you know, all fun and games, like as an idea. And then when you get into the edit suite, it was a nightmare. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, I mean, by the sounds of I mean, you know, we've spoken to, different kinds of documentary makers over the years on, on this show and it really is a tough gig making docos because you've only got what you've got. Totally. You can't make it up. Totally, yeah. I mean, if you did, it wouldn't be a doco. Totally. So, exactly. yeah, this yeah. idea that you're working with what you've got. So how did you go about getting the vision that that you pulled together for this? Uh, in terms of visuals or just the, the overall vision? No, the, no, the um, in, in terms of visuals. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I was just uh, basically followed her around for... Uh, three years or so on and off tour um so we'd just make a time you know when she's back in melbourne once a week or once a fortnight just to catch up and um then on tour just you know on tour um going around the world and uh, i guess holiday shopping i'd call it just like you know <laughs> you'd be such a, a, pl- a place for such a short amount of time that you just have you know have 12 24 hours there and and then just move on to the next one but um yeah tricky to kind of um you know, fit into a touring dynamic and um, be there documenting while everyone else is kind of like, I mean, sure, I'm working, but, you know, 
crew are that's their full time job and they're lifting and you know, you know you know what a crew does and so I guess when you're there just filming or and especially when you're filming on sixteen mil you can't film a lot so you're kind of there filming ten twenty minutes a day um, trying to really pick your moments so. Um, does filming on 16 mil make it trickier as well? Like, I'm, I'm not a filmmaker, but is that kind of bulky to be carting around that sort of oh, yeah. stuff at all? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. Yeah, real bulky. Um, you know, they used to have ads where it was like a cat on your shoulder, but it, it's a really heavy cat. Like, yeah. it's been fed, fed <laughs> overfed. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's tricky with, like, how much you can shoot. You can only sh- shoot 10-minute uh, rolls and then um, also going through, like, uh, X-ray machines are a problem and... Wow. Yeah, you kind of get into this weird game with a um, like a TSA agent where you're like, you can't X-ray it, but you also can't open it. You just have to believe me. And um, well, an exercise in trust. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lots of smiling. Yeah. <laughs> Especially you're going into the states. Like, yeah, quite I a actually, bit by the looks. They're actually like awesome. Um, I don't know. They're so like earnest and beautiful. Those TSA agents. They actually like as soon as you're nice to them, that they're just nice back. You know, so. That's, That's a good, good strategy. Yeah, be nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, this—it is a particularly intense thing to do to, to make a documentary about someone. And obviously, you know, you knew Courtney quite well beforehand, but you're getting these audio recordings and you're travelling around the world with her. I mean, did your sort of relationship, friendship, kind of change as a result of that? And, and working really intensively on this single product about her. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we grew obviously a lot closer um, over the process and. Um, I feel like we were both on our own sort of journeys and they kind of met up at different times and split away at different times. And, um, you know, after a while, it gets like, you know, you get so close that you're like, oh, we're just hanging out and, okay, now it's time to film. And so you'd have Mm -hmm. to kind of keep switching between being friends and then doing the documenting process. And then so it kind of, you know, as soon as you lift up a camera, then the dynamic does change. So you have to try and, like, have a camera somewhere all the time in order to kind of keep it um try and keep the most honest Courtney um that you can get yeah yeah it's interesting to to imagine that dynamic because I I I mean even you see Courtney you know she was going through a hard time it seemed at the beginning when you were making the documentary Mm. and then it changes and it becomes lighter and brighter as she starts to collaborate with a friend again and I was thinking about that too that she's making a new album with a friend and this idea of friendship and work mm-hmm. there's it seems seamless in her life at least in the way that's captured in the documentary this friendship work balance is is there yeah totally i mean um it can you can see it with courtney and i you can see it with her and stella as they're recording and um there were many other times that we kind of filmed stuff that w- was with friends but you know the, there's a certain amount of pullback you have to do and and thinking and work you have to do on your own and then when you're ready to sort of share sometimes it's nice to get those collaborators um on board Mm. speaking with danny cohen director of anonymous club a documentary all about courtney barnett as she travels around the world playing um, predominantly kind of a a solo tour at the time and giving really intimate insights into what's on her mind um throughout that that period of of her life as well and i mean i I mentioned that there is now essentially kind of a soundtrack album accompanying this Mm. um this documentary what was the the nature of I suppose, the role of music in this film. How did that all come about, end of the day? Yeah, I mean, the plan was to kind of fold in as much Courtney as possible. So um, I'd heard that uh, when 
Jim Jarmusch did Dead Man with Neil Young. I was thinking about that yeah, as a reference. He, he yeah, he just like projected it and Neil Young did it in two takes. He's just like <laughs> just sitting there just ripping one uh, or two. Uh, and then they ended up using it. And so I said to Courtney, I was like, well, we could do a similar thing and kind of project it. And I was like, it does feel like, uh, you know, I want her reaction um, and a pretty sort of cold reaction to it she hadn't seen the film that many times um i think she'd seen the final cut maybe once and so i thought give it a bit of time and then we can project it in a studio and then her and stella can kind of you know react off it which it's not an easy watch for courtney to to go through so Mm. i wasn't trying to get dramatic sort of feelings from her but i was trying to get her to feel something um and then that to be captured live on on the day which it was um so then after a little while once the films come out courtney then courtney with stella um kind of uh, got all the stems and uh what do you call it like stretch not stretched out just made it into like one seamless um mm. sort of it sounds like a um, long jam even though i was listening to, to courtney on with phoebe squared last monday saying it wasn't it was quite deliberate that they made it sound like it yeah. was very loose and jammy yeah yeah it, it it's ended up um sounding amazing yeah, yeah totally yeah i mean i was really pleased actually to see the progression in the film and hear courtney reflect on that she felt sort of stronger and more confident and things like this as as she was touring solo, for instance, after mm-hmm. doing a big band tour and then, you know, being excited about new work and, and things like this. And, I mean, you know, that that she's seen the documentary, that I, I did come away feeling really glad <laughs> and yeah. really pleased yeah. that you can see an artist come into their own again yeah. uh, and after and still being so successful. I mean, was that the narrative that you're talking about or what was it that you were hoping that people would take from from the film yeah i mean i, I feel like courtney's her sort of journey is so universal um everyone goes through those doubts and everyone has those times where they you know want to retreat and be more alone and um be more contemplative and it's 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 a really natural thing uh it's not something to shy away from or be embarrassed about and um i kept telling courtney that um you know, the more honest she is, the more she'll be able to connect with people and the more it'll help people on their journeys. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm just glad it's captured and I'm glad Courtney can reflect back on it. And, you know, even now when I reflect back on it, I still find stuff all the time. Um, even a couple of years later after seeing it, um, after the film came out, I kind of had a similar thing too, where, you know, when you've put so much effort into something and then you're like, oh, what was I doing again, like, with life? Like, yeah, you know? what was the purpose? Like, there was a real sense of a need for purpose and yeah. when that would waver at different times, that reflection. And, you know, we've, we interviewed Courtney on, on this show a long time ago when she was – I was trying to do a calculation with you off air and she would have been in her early 20s. Yeah. And I – you know, you could see her really struggling with some of the media interviews and trying mm-hmm. to bear all and trying to be mm-hmm. authentic because she is such an authentic person and I – never really thought about it that you yeah. know maybe she was doing that at 23 in, yeah. in here who knows um, yeah she's a searcher for sure yeah. yeah yeah and just to to think that that effort the um the respect i guess for the sharing with audiences is mm-hmm. there all the way through that really comes through the film yeah definitely i mean it's something she's so inspired by like she's always reading some someone's biography or some you know kind of all these like signposts along the way creative signposts um which we always bond over um, sharing different sort of like, you know, creative approaches or ideas and all that sort of stuff. But 
you know, I'm I'm hoping that Courtney can, be, well, she already is, just becomes another signpost for somebody else. Yeah, I, I mean, I was um, recently found myself at Niagara Falls a few months ago, oh, yeah. and so that Beautiful. scene, I had the exact same thoughts when I got there. I'm like, why? Why am I here? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Why am I doing the tourist thing again? Yeah. And so that really resonated with me, just randomly, yeah. um, <laughs> where she's kind of talking about that, and I had the exact same kind of feeling of being surrounded by people in, in my case, redded hoods because we're on the Canada side. Oh yeah, true. So yeah, wild what place. What a funny place. Totally. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we, when we were like on the boat, I I had um. I had it in the footage, but I was like, it has no place in such a beautiful scene that we were sort of like constructing. But there was this guy that as they like crossed the border, he was like, we're in America. Like, this is America. Like, it was just like, so I was like, how do you, like, of course this would happen, but it was just yeah. so special. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, and so what, what has been the response so far? Like you're talking about kind of, um, I suppose, Courtney as well, uh, towards the end, she talks about wanting what she gets value out of music, I suppose, is, is her fans connecting with it in some way. And mm-hmm. there's that beautiful footage of, of fans just totally rocking out by themselves at, at concerts. So as a director, what's been important to you in terms of the kind of audience's reaction to this? Oh, I mean, that's a tricky one. I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I'm, I'm happy with anyone watches it and finds something. Um, or if they don't, that's totally fine too. But yeah, um, uh, yeah I don't know, like a, a when I was at South by with a friend, Derry, we had, you know, there's all this hype for the premiere and all this stuff. And then you go and then the, it's done. And you're just kind of like standing outside and you're like, Oh, whoa, it's like weird. It's just out and it's happened. And, mm. you know, and then someone comes up just like one person's like, Oh, I f- like that was so, you know, I felt this and blah, 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 you know, really lovely things. And Derry's like, that's it. Like that's one per that's all you need. Like, yeah. you know, now I can even reflect on the film and I can find stuff on my own. But I'm like, if one other person, that's that's heaps. That's great. Mm. So, Has it inspired yeah. you to go and make a documentary with 16 mil? No, no, yeah, no, no. That's it's squashed that for sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, never say never. But um, yeah, <laughs> if anyone's got the budget for it, I'm down. Yeah, excellent. Um, and so, how can people watch it? So it's now out on on Docplay. It is. Yep. Fantastic. So you just head there. You can subscribe to the platform and, and mm-hmm. watch it in the comfort of your own home. That's it. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Danny Cohen, uh, director of the um, the documentary Anonymous Club, all about Courtney Barnett. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having thanks. me. Thanks. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. And it is Absolutely wonderful to have legendary broadcaster Tracy Hutchinson in the house. Tracy's here because it's my last grapevine uh, and Dylan's going to keep the show going. I keep putting that there, have you noticed? That uh, Tracy was a big part of my early involvement with Triple R where I was a part of your show, Trace, The Words, and I was uh, talking all sorts of guff about energy and households and that was a long time ago, way back at the beginning of the century. Wow. Yeah. And I was... A, completely green in every way I think Mm. um very new to radio and uh you were such a champion of mine and I'd come on monthly (laughs) and just talk stuff and happy birthday I have to put that there (laughs) thank you for coming in on my last show on your birthday it's like a double celebration going on here what an amazing confluence of circumstance (laughs) that we find ourselves in you beautiful darlings um what a joy to be here back at the heartland of course and celebrating just an extraordinary contribution to community to this radio station to championing our beautiful 
battling blue planet, uh, which you have, Kalia, over many decades. And I also don't want to exclude you, Dylan, in that because you've been absolutely, um, you know, you've been each other's wing people through. I know, for almost a decade, that pretty time. much. Yeah. Out here. You can layer it on Kalia today, and that's okay, but thank you. <laughs> with Donna. But, um, but yeah, so you and I go back to uh, sort of. 2001, I was I, I was doing a little bit of work for the ABC producing and we got you in. You were part of a, uh, you know, one of our green warriors that came in and I think were you at the... Was I was at Renew. Renew then, that's yeah. right. I was editing their magazine mm. and, yeah. Mm-hmm. And talking about you know, grey water recycling and solar. Probably composting toilets And composting toilets and all the great stuff and so <laughs> ahead of the curve. And I must confess, you know, when I first met you, I think you were in your early 20s and I was just completely smitten with your your passion, your 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 dedication, your ability to articulate really quite complex issues in a very um, – Easy, easy to uh, easy to understand way, you know, just such a, a natural born communicator, and particularly on issues that can be quite daunting for people. You and know. earnest, often earnest, often and earnest. But, yeah, but, and I, I I must say I, I like an antidote to earnest. And that's, think, yeah, yeah, and that's right. And I think that that was the thing that was your great gift that really sort of shone through your ability to communicate quite challenging issues in 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 very in heart led ways uh heart and mind led ways and and that's actually you know an incredible gift and it's a gift of people who are great at broadcasting and community communicating with the cut through and i heard you interview beautiful muriel Bam- muriel mm. blanford a little earlier and and that interview too you know taking very complex issues issues that are quite divisive and difficult for folk and to be able to communicate those things in a really clear, cut-through way has always been something that um, you have done with such a plomb. And so when I started my show here at Triple R in 2001, the same year, you were absolutely top of my list to be someone who would become a contributor on that program, The Word, which we did for many, many years. I remember when you first rang me. No. And I thought, oh, I think I remember that phone yeah, call too. Yeah, it, it was really, it was really <laughs> exciting <laughs> because mm. I had – Read the mm. RMIT news when I was at university on on Triple R, and so I loved I loved Triple mm. R, of course, and had been a listener for a long time. And the idea of being a guest was mm. like, oh wow, this is yeah. you know, I so still feel good. that way. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I remember the phone call too, and I'm thinking, I hope she says yes. It was sort of like some kind of date or something, you know, <laughs> sort of like I really hope she says yes because I really want. And I had you, and I had um, my very dear long term friend Gavin McFadden, who right. was working then at the Wilderness Society, and he's now. Uh, the um, energy and something or other campaigner for the ACF. I had um, beautiful Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth. Yeah, we inherited him. And David Mann, who at that stage was a fledgling human rights lawyer from the Refugee and Immigration Legal Centre and I'd seen an op-ed that he'd written in The Age and I I similarly phoned him up as well. It was sort of, you know, the thing about being on the radio or having a kind of a vehicle is that it actually gives you an opportunity to ring people like that without just being a lunatic. You know, it's like, I just thought I'd phone you because I 
think you're amazing. I still find that an incredible privilege. Like Isn't you wake it? up on a Monday morning, it's like I'm going to have a chat to these totally. amazing five, six people today. Yeah. Like what an absolute pleasure that is to be able to totally, get to do it huh? every week. Yeah, because otherwise you're just sort of someone ringing up people, <laughs> going, and the point of the conversation is. So yeah, I mean, an, in, an incredible privilege and opportunity, and and obviously at a place like Triple R that we know is just such a cultural icon and such an asset and such an incredible um, part of this community and more broadly, you know, not just Melbourne but the the kind of national and global influence of Triple R is significant and Radiothon, you know, it's interesting. You'd asked me to come on Radiothon a couple of weeks ago and, and um, I was, I was, I've been a little unwell and I, I sort of had to say, look, I, I really can't. I can barely speak. <laughs> I haven't got a voice. Uh, and the timing of this is so perfect because I've been away for a few months and just to be back in Melbourne having this opportunity mm. to cheer you on as you go and thank you for just an extraordinary contribution, being part of you know, a conversation that, you know, multiple conversations that are all about making uh, our our world a better place. And, you know, this program and others at Triple R do that all the time. But you have been an absolute champion for change. And Thank you. I'm so, say, so proud of you. It's so nice to hear these stories. And, I mean, I knew that you two go way back, but I didn't yes. know exactly how it all kind of came <laughs> to be. It so... further, actually, because I remember, I still remember who, my, my dad, who's a huge radio listener, I still remember him saying, hey, kids, there's this new radio station coming to Melbourne called Triple G. And oh. you have to hear it right, and he turns it on, and it's you. It was Tracy Hutchison doing the first, the first broadcast, yeah, yeah. and so and I remember her from oh that. My gosh. And so when I was, I was, you um, know, at, at, I mean, you had been in radio for a few hmm. years, maybe, but I was. So impressed by that. And you need your radio heroes. You need your broadcasting <laughs> mm. heroes. And I know everyone at Triple R isn't a professional broadcaster by training or anything. I mean, I've spent years at the ABC as well. But here we just get to do, you know, speak to people that we admire mm. and who bring different new ideas to the place. And and also, you know, hearing the, the football broadcasts that you did. Oh. Now I'm telling it all about now, Tracy. But, oh. but I think this is what I wanted to talk to you about on, on Radiothon, Trace, because... The, you know, women and and football. Mm. What a thing we've just had this year. And I just think, mm. but it was, was it you and Sam Lane and others mm. that really put the spotlight mm. on the importance of women in the games. Yeah, and, and Sam was another of my guests on that program from the beginning. And, and Sammy and I had been working on a show at the ABC together that, that uh, Frances uh, Leach had put together. And, um, and, uh, and, and shockingly, uh, my, the name of which escapes me, but it was, it was a, uh, but anyway, it was a group of people and it, it all had coaches in the outer and it was a Saturday morning show. And it was really quite a maverick show. And, and Frank, of course, had also spent some time at the Jays and, the, and here as well. And, and, you know, there's that maverick kind of thing that you want to try and break down some of those, um, social mores and norms around who gets a voice and who gets access to speak about things. And Sammy was a very young um, journalist at that point and, you know, she'd been thrown on the radio. Uh, I mean, obviously everyone recognised her potential. She'd been thrown on the radio as Tim's daughter uh, and there was sort of some kind, some assumption that somehow that would make her able to sort of be as capable as Tim Lane. And I remember sort of meeting her very early on in the piece and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to throw my arms around this 
incredible young woman who I know is going to have a really long career, not because she's Tim's daughter, because in her own right she is going to make an incredible contribution, but we all need people to get around us. Yeah. Yeah. And so she became a regular of the word and we chat, we talked footy every week and you know, for the most part, it was it was really just two women talking about the men's game because that was the game that dominated, you know, until really relatively recently. Um, but it did start changing the game. And um, we also had a number of broadcasts here. We had a couple of, uh, you know, all women calling the grand final uh, with beautiful Kat Perdrio, who's, who was a long-term broadcaster at Triple R and others who were all part of this all women calling the grand final. We were all part of the, you know, the very early days of the Community Cup, getting women playing and, and really actually sort of forcing men to make room for us uh, on air, on the football field, um, in, 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 in however we, can, we could. And, you know, it, it, it does feel like you're sort of still having to have those conversations. Yeah. Uh, but we, we, we nonetheless, I think, you know, did help change the Made game. Made an impression on me, that's for sure. Yeah, and Sammy yeah. got picked up then by before the game at Channel 10 because people like Dave Hughes and others, big listeners to Triple R, and that's where they heard her. And, and she was off and, and makes now an incredible contribution you know, still being part of the women's commentary at Channel 7. And again, ahead of, ahead of the curb. Mm. Like, this is what we're talking about with you and your kind of, you know, I suppose environmental uh, bent and, and all these things about sustainability and, and ecological mm. um, sustainability and the like. And there's such mainstream issues now. Women and footy, I mean, look at the AFLW, look what happened with the Matildas. Like, it's so normalised to be into women playing football now, but, yeah. it, but it, it, you know, it wasn't spoken about on the airwaves at all previously. Abs- absolutely not. And When Saturday Comes was the name of that show, incidentally, my little <laughs> monkey brain going wild behind my Frankie show. But, um, but I think one of the things that was so magnificent watching the Matildas, I mean, yes, they were extraordinary on the field, but it was actually the little kids and and little boys i've got to say and and we saw that with the aflw mm. as well but seeing you know little boys cheering on older women women older than them doing something extraordinary and and not have it feel unusual and and that to me felt like wow you know it's like you were talking this morning to Muriel about the changes that we're living in you don't necessarily recognize you're living in moments of change but of course we are everything keeps changing and it's only when you have these moments to sort of reflect on oh well actually that was significant you know it it was really significant it was significant that Triple R had a an all-women you know calling team of of an AFL grand final yeah uh you know and had some token blokes like Matthew Richardson you know, calling in from half time for us. You yeah. know, it's like, thank you, you've had enough airtime, Matthew. Yeah. You can go back to the multi million dollar salary that you're being paid That's whilst right. we're here as well. And to you. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of thinking too about, I mean, um, the whole idea of being a champion for people. And, you know, you talked about how, you know, Tracy was a person who got you involved in broadcasting, Kalia, and also what you've done for, for me and others as well in being so inclusive and just giving me and others the confidence to just give radio a shot and throw yourself in there and see how you go and to encourage people. That's such an incredible thing that you've done throughout my time here. And I often think how life-changing it is being part of Triple R and connecting with these people. Like, I don't know if I'd be here doing radio. I don't know what I would have done if I didn't feel such a strong connection with this place and with you and Donna 
way back then too. So I just want to kind of acknowledge that mm. and thank you for all that you've done within the walls of this place as well as on the airwaves. Yeah, it's really, it's it's been fun um, to see how people's involvement in the station changes as well and who you get to know and who hangs around. And I guess it was, you know, it was huge in COVID when people weren't in the station. Mm. And I feel that in some ways, I remember talking to Dave Houch and the, the program manager at the time and we didn't know if community radio would be permitted to keep Mm. operating uh, through that period. It hadn't been worked out yet and we all ended up getting our special work permits on our phones <laughs> that we could show if we got pulled up by coming into the station. But mm. it felt, I remember talking to him saying, this is when we need to broadcast. This is, and I think that love of, of community and broadcasting really shines at those times. Mm. And uh, yeah, and you see people like Dan Morganti, who we spoke to mm-hmm. during Radiothon, he's just, he got involved and then he just, his involvement grows. And you, you came in, Dylan, and we're helping with our playlist and making Something coffees like for people. Yeah. You just, and you turned up every... You're more reliable than we were. You turned up every single week and then you started you filming acts. You know, you did mm. a lot of video recording and then became a producer here. And, yeah, it's just amazing to see that um, change happen when people get involved with something in the community and then they can become who they want to be. It's It's a choice really yeah. isn't it yeah, yeah it's mm. it's really really good but you're back in town trace and we've been following the news <laughs> and i was news. very excited to see uh, mm. that you were you know a manager of bay fm up there in byron bay and then uh, we were talking housing policy earlier today and then boom, 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 housing. <laughs> housing, yeah. Here you are. Um, look, yeah, a few months ago I had an incredible opportunity uh, to uh, go to Byron and be the station manager at Bay FM, which is an incredible little radio station in the most easterly station in the nation. Um, it, and it was kind of a job that for me you know, sort of came with its own internal headline too, you know, sort of radio station hires 60-year-old woman. You know, there was a there was a kind of a uh, a feeling like, oh, okay, you know, there's still hope for me. I'm not quite on this. Couldn't get anyone better, really. I'm not, not quite on the scrap heap because, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a challenging time for um, for anyone, I think, in your, in your more um, – and I don't think I'm old by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I am – you know, more advanced down the, the sort of the professional line than, than many other people are who I might be competing against for jobs, for example. And so when I was successful in this job, I thought, amazing, I'm so thrilled about being given this opportunity to work in a role like this in a sector that I love, that I'm going to upend my life and move 2,000 kilometres for it. Um, which sort of probably also speaks to my previous experience as well of, of really struggling to find meaningful work that I could I could sort of really kind of um be be afforded that opportunity in a place like Melbourne for example um despite you know the thousands of things that I've done but you know I'm not alone in that particular narrative either uh the overqualified cohort of people who are all under underemployed uh, or unemployed so, you know, pack myself up and take myself up there thinking, oh, you know, I know it's hard. I certainly didn't go there thinking, you know, I'm going to magic up some kind of $100 house a week. And But I'm really well connected up there. You know, I've got a lot of friends. I've lived there before. I knew what I was stepping into. I thought I knew what I was stepping into. Um, what I hadn't really factored, you know, the, the Northern Rivers is, is, is in a really challenging uh, time, you know, they had two years of COVID, which wiped out 
the main economy, which and is the tourism, and mm. then um, and then the floods straight off the back of it. And there are still many, many people in the area who are displaced by the extensive level of flooding that happened. You know, I think I think people possibly possibly outside of that area don't necessarily understand just how devastating and and ongoingly displaced those people are. And we, we know from the bushfires, Black Saturday, people are still not in their homes, right? So how we actually take care of people when things like that happen and they're going to happen increasingly because of the issues you've been championing for, you know, 30 years, Kalia. Uh, we, we know it's real. So I, I arrived in a town that, you know, is, is the homelessness capital of Australia, no question. Um, more people per capita homeless than Sydney and that means it's, 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 it's the highest in the country. And the community station is housed in the community centre in Byron and it would not be unusual – and the downstairs serves out meals – several times a week there's a liberation ladder there doing an amazing job it's a hub for people who need help so I would regularly be stepping over people who had been sleeping rough uh, to get into work it's very visible in, in Byron um, Byron has always had a perception versus reality issue going back decades you know it's not like um, I, I didn't expect that it would be tough for people but what, what we're seeing there is is, is absolutely um, the starkness of the great wealth that's there and then the people who are trying to actually um, live there but need to work to live there and others who don't actually have anywhere else to go because they've been there for periods of time and, and have been displaced. the community side of it. I mean, I think that's what was really, um, you know, been really you know, cared about what you've just gone through on a personal level and then on the, the on the community level that we want great things like Triple R, we want mm. fantastic institutions like Bay FM. Absolutely. And then attracting staff on, on community wages. Yeah, that's right. And also into an environment where it's very difficult for them to find build housing community. and build That's community right. and yeah. have it around them. Yeah. Um, I mean, we don't take it for granted here by any stretch, but... Yeah. You can't take it for granted there. No, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And, and it just wasn't sustainable to, to be in a situation where I'm, I'm virtually going to have to pay my weekly wage in rent to have, have somewhere that was going to be somewhere that would sustain me to do a job like that. And, mm. and I don't want this – this is a much bigger issue than me not being able to live in Byron. You know, it's just one example. The Writers' Festival director has had a similar experience. Um, she'd, mo- she'd, she'd moved there. She just delivered her first festival, isn't staying because the cost equation is just doesn't work out, you know. And a lot of arts and practitioners in the area are, are saying, well, how do we attract? And it's right through the community sector, you know, mm. the community centre itself. You know, in the week I was announcing I was going, they had three members of staff who were all saying, can't afford to live here anymore, wow. moving somewhere else. And so what that does to the sort of cultural fabric of a town is is really significant and you know when you've got people those of whom are lucky enough to have cars to sleep in taking up all the car parking spaces and then people who are driving around the streets in perhaps higher net worth individual type cars who are kind of cranky that they can't find anywhere to park outside their favorite cafe to be served by people who can't afford to live there it's it's really it's a it's an issue that is it 
is impacting the peninsula where you know I'm from and I'm very familiar with and the Conti uh, a, a hotel in Sorrento has just got council approval they'd bought a, an aged care facility which has now been turned into staff accommodation so they can actually put people up but it's an issue in those sorts of places that people love to go for holidays and I just started seeing a very different side of what was going on and I think for me I, I did three months um, and I, I really just thought I'm you know I'm not 40 I'm not even you know I'm not 30 I'm not even 50 maybe you know but I you know I did have to sort of think this is this is something really this is a job for someone who is local who can who who, for whom housing is not going to be quite an issue as it might be for someone like me who is moving there Mm. and try and sort of and I got offered you know I kept being offered Short-term things, you know, you can have this place for a month, we're going away, you know, I got offered a studio space that I could have been able to bring my dog, but I know you've got to get out at the end of November because we rent it out. What a startling state of affairs. Yeah, like the, the, the... the short-term letting Airbnb has absolutely killed it. Yeah. And then the rest of it is people who are at the complete other end of, of the spectrum financially and, mm. and good on them for making better choices than me in life. Um, but, you know, the town, you know, a lot of shops empty, a lot of businesses struggling. And as we know, the economy of a community radio station relies on those same businesses it for does. sponsorship yep. and other things. So when those sorts of economic factors are being influenced and impacted, you know, Bay FM is not immune to that either, you know. And But, you know, a brand-new little boutique hotel, five-star hotel, just got finished, you know, a week or so Amazing. before I left. And well, uh, These are the, the conversations <laughs> that, you know, we need to keep having mm. on places like Triple R. And I think mm. community radio can serve as such an important forum for this. Like, mm. I was aware of these issues but had no idea that it had deteriorated to the extent that you've just outlined. Um, on a slightly lighter note, yeah. it's your birthday today. Oh. <laughs> Any plans? Uh, well, I'm here mm. and I couldn't think of a, a better place to be having just sort of, you know, relocated home. And I'm, uh, you know, I also recognise uh, I was very fortunate to have a home to come back to and I really don't want this to be about, oh, you know, went there and what a, what a surprise. It was expensive. Uh, it's more complicated than that, I hope, and, uh, and this is a moment for really some action on affordable housing because it's it's so widespread you know the knock on of everything that's happening and cost of living is 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 absolutely stark in Byron so I'm thrilled to be home I couldn't think of a better way to spend my birthday morning than here at Triple R saluting Kalia Coulson as she signs off for a mighty mighty innings and to wish so proud of you and to wish you you know all the very best as you continue to make amazing change in the space you're working in at Climate Works and just so mighty the work, isn't it? I it's mean, we're huge. so proud yes. of you. It's just amazing. Thank yeah. you so much, Tracy. Uh-huh. Thank you for coming in. Mm. Thank you for your nice words, Dylan. And um, thank you, Trace. Oh, happy birthday. You know, say, keep, keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> Fly on with your magic green wings. I'm sure you will. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. For so many years, the Orb Weavers have been captivating listeners with their beautiful and profound music that prompts us to think more deeply about history, place and community, all things that we hold dear on this show. Um, The Orb Weavers are playing a few um, gigs coming up in the next few weeks and we're thrilled to have them stopping by ahead of that and to say goodbye to Kalia. Welcome, Stuart, Marita. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us, Dylan and morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming. And thanks for coming with birds, one on your head, Stuart, and one on your guitar. 
Marita. Thank you um, for so noticing that. Mm. Uh, we have Stuart's hat. I really love it. Has a um, magpie on it, drawn by Steph Hughes, oh, and yeah. magpies are just like they're out at the moment singing beautiful songs. Mm. And can you not talk about magpies near the magpie supporter <gasps> over there? Quite good football as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But the bird song oh, is right. yeah. <laughs> time with magpies. Sorry, I'm, I'm not. He really wants to be funny. buying tickets to the games at the moment, rather. <laughs> I'm teasing it now. I, can't, I shouldn't do that. I should. I, 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 away. If I couldn't take it, I would have left a long time ago. <laughs> well, then I can segue to the swan on my guitar. Yes. And swans are also associated with football, but they're associated very strongly with the beautiful waterways of this place of and and across the southeast of of this country. But they're very present in waterways of of Nam, Melbourne. So, yeah, we love, Stuart and I love swans and magpies and it's always really nice to see them and to hear swan songs. If you're lucky enough to hear swans singing, they have a really cool song. They're incredible, actually. I was uh, out on a kayak yesterday near Kerrang, oh, so yeah. a long way from, from Melbourne, and there were swans there with signets, black swans with signets, and they had this really deep mm. booming sound when they're trying to protect their signets as well as the high sound it's extraordinary it was so beautiful to see them you know the little signets behind them (laughs) wonderful exactly it was extraordinary beautiful it is a time of um of new life and lots of um blossoms out and new leaves and new growth and thinking of grapevines kind of springing forth with their tendrils yeah and i was saying mine in my backyard's just come back again and i was like i don't know it feels apt in some way <laughs> to have happened the week that you're you're saying goodbye i um have a cutting still a, a grapevine from the tree that you wrote that song about at my house i am so thrilled it's still to there hear that that is one crawls up the at the front of the house there oh, which wow. shows and it's really quite you know substantial now which shows how long we've known each other That's and right. how long ago we first played that song we, we trace it right back to when it first came out yeah 2009 because that yeah that song is written about a cutting that I got from my uncle that my uncle got from my grandmother's house of and then that was from my great-grandmother's house in Elmore in country Victoria so yeah it's um that grapevine travels and brings stories with it as it goes and climbs and it's a very um it's a really strong grapevine like it's very vigorous um in its in its habits and it's um and also if you I think if you pull off some of the new shoots and you uh, bite on the end of them you get that nice lemony Mm. um grapevine flavor it's Acetic acid, I think. It's yeah, right. Really, I didn't really know that. My neighbours usually are the ones that collect the leaves for their Dolmatis. Oh, they come and take them off that grapevine. So. And so that, would have been, that was very early on in your sort of music making career, wasn't it? Like that, that song got played and you brought in it was. <laughs> a gift. Thank yeah. you so much to the grapevine for being at the first show who played that song off our very first album. And as we were all reminiscing, um, I drop in copies of new music to Triple R and PBS and 3CR, often with notes explaining what some of the songs are about and um, kind of messages to different shows where I think maybe a song might be appropriate for them to, to think of. And I know that um, presenters get so much mail and lots of lots of requests for their their time and airplay and it's it's really lovely when people play a song and you hear it on the radio and it's thrilling it's really wonderful to be able to have that chance and triple r 
and the grapevine have always encouraged that interaction and community and been very supportive. So we're very grateful for all the times that you've supported us and played our music and invited us in and it means a lot to us so thank you so much Carlia. My um, mind's going through the names of different shows and what messages you might have written or <laughs> gifts you might have given so I mean, yeah. did you give someone a loom or? Oh uh, well <laughs> yeah I'm thinking back now I would often because I, I know that people don't have a lot of time and it's quite a lot to listen to lots of music and um, and put together show playlists so sometimes I would write a note and say I think this song could be thematically of interest to your to your program mm. and perhaps that's a bit presumptuous and I totally would accept that people might receive that and think oh I don't know what you're talking about but it's always it's something that I like to do I like to find connections between things and I like thematically thinking about the way different ideas are connected and songs are always full of ideas like lyrically or musically and it's fun to to kind of draw those threads together so that's probably something that I, I know Stu and I talk about a lot and maybe the way my mind works, I'm always just thinking about how different things are connected to each other. So grapevine song for the grapevine. <laughs> Makes sense. Oh, it works because I actually remember it and because this was a very new program then and so having people listening to it and saying that they're listening to it and they connect to it is very meaningful. And so, yeah, I think those um, connections have run all the way through. And, I mean, we were, you know, I was looking back on some photos um, for this show and realised that you were the last ones to play live music on our show before the pandemic, before we couldn't have it again, really for a couple of years, wasn't it? Was mm. it about two years? Yeah. We didn't have people in studio with, with guitars. And that was significant to look at that and think, oh, the uncertainty that would have surrounded that show probably and yes. that and that performance is we didn't know what was coming that's right you still managed to keep everyone connected and and keep those threads flowing throughout that time though so um yeah testament to to your show and to triple r and community radio yeah we look so relaxed in that picture before we knew what was coming <laughs> yeah we were broadcasting between a, well, a big screen between us wasn't there for a yeah. long time big pane of glass so yeah <laughs> glad to be all in the same studio together um and today and i mean what's been happening in the world of the orb weavers lately what have you been up to well, we've been writing songs um, in response to a residency that we did last year. We were lucky to travel to Willyukali and Barkindji country in far west New South Wales and um, we had an arts residency there where we, we learned a lot about the history of of, of that place and of those of that country and um, we were staying in Broken Hill and so we have written a suite of songs in response to that and then we've written a suite of songs about... Um, living in Melbourne, in Nam, Melbourne, and again focused on waterways because that's one of our areas of interest. So we're hoping to have that record out next year, and we're releasing the first single from that um, in well in a few weeks. Awesome. It'll be yeah, we're having a launch um, for that in December at Brunswick Ballroom on the 9th of December, and before then we'll be playing two shows, one this Sunday at. Werribee River for Riverfest, um, which is organised by the Werribee Riverkeepers Association. So that's a free 
show. So if you're on the west side and you'd love to come down and spend some time by the beautiful Werribee River, there'll be amazing um, performers, dancers, workshops, lots of Is it of just activities. in Werribee there in, ta- yeah. in this town? Because that's, so, that's a beautiful stretch of the Werribee River, right? It's there. A, is, yeah. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. Yes. If you head to Werribee River Keepers Association, um, I think their Instagram will have all the details. And then we're playing another show for um, we're, as part of the 86 Festival, which is just fantastic, thinking about all those awesome venues along the 86 tram line, more than 200 local bands performing um, at various venues. So we're part of the Super Saturday. We're playing at Northcote Uniting Church with Grand Salvo, Bats, Music, Andrew Tuttle. That's going to be a good show. Yeah, that's going to be really fun. Um, and that's um, the Mistletone show that we're part of on that day, 28th of October, Saturday. Heaps of awesome shows happening that day all along the, the stretch of the 86. So I'm sure there's something um, for everyone all day and into the night. I, I wrote fabulous. down the um, the cell on that. It's one street, one day, 40-plus <clears throat> curators, 40-plus venues, 200-plus acts, all free. Mm. Yes. Extraordinary. Nuts. <laughs> yeah. Free is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Down at the Werribee River, this, this, so this weekend that's happening. Yeah, um, yeah. Wyndham Park. Wyndham Park? Yeah. And what, that, that's, sorry, Saturday, is it? Sunday. Su- Sunday, Did yeah. Did I the say Saturday, sorry? No, that was just my Dylan brain frying two minutes before we <laughs> yeah. finished the show. I said that. No, no, no. It's, uh, Saturday. <laughs> I was thinking Sunday. about the weather on the weekend. That's where yeah. my mind was going. I'm like, hang on, Saturday's going to be pretty good, I think. But what kind of birds do you reckon will be knocking around the Werribee River? Oh that wow! Time well, um, let's hope. I'm I'm not I'm not an expert, but let's hope we see some. We might even see a, a white-faced heron. We might see egrets. We might see. Um, some ducks, we might see black swans. Pelicans overhead. Yeah. Um, the only time I've seen a spoonbill was at Cheatham when we were walking around at Cheatham and we're very lucky to see a, a, a royal spoonbill. Keep your eyes peeled. Blew my yep. mind. <laughs> fairy, fairy wrens and... Yeah, there'll be there'll there will be birds there. They will be there. There will yes. be birds, and they'll be yeah. on your hat and on your guitar. And so, you thank will. you so much, both of you, for coming in, and thanks for being such supporters of this show, but also just bringing your beautiful music to the Triple R Airwaves. And yeah, it's been wonderful to get to know you over the years, and it will not be the end. I will look forward to seeing you play live very, very soon, um, even in the next month. So, thank we'll you for you having there. us and thank being you, so Kai. supportive. Thanks, guys. But I did want to say a few thank yous, if that's all right. I just did indulgence in the last couple of minutes of um, co-hosting this show, Dylan. Of course, you'll be continuing it on. And thank you so much to you, which I'll come to a little bit later. Um, but Donna Morabito, who kicked off the show with me. Thank you, Donna. Uh, our program managers in my time here, Beck Hornsby right now, amazing legend. Chris Hatzis, Mick James, who got us on, on air first and approved our show idea, which is incredible. And producers in the time, Adam Christo, thank you, Adam. You, Dylan, produced this show uh, and others for a time. Donna did as well. Elizabeth McCarthy, Rose Callahan, music producers, Sam Cummins, amazing. Simon Winkler, Kate Blanchfield, Sarah Smith. Um, we just get to work with so many brilliant people, Ben. Dan and Gianni who did the podcast for this show over many years and station manager Dave Houchin who has been here pretty much the whole time I have um, bar six months or so when Kath Kath Letch was still 
the station manager and we bond with people when we do shows at 3 Triple R and uh, the Monday morning crew of staff that are in the station, especially through COVID, um, Archie, Adam and Joe, but all the broadcasters and people at the station have just been incredible to work with, so supportive, so funny. Um, so much fun. And uh, the guests, there's probably, I was did a sort of a calculation, I reckon thousands of people yeah, have come through. remember that time. And, uh, yeah, over 14 years and counting because this show will go on. So a big shout out to those that came in regularly as well to talk books and craft and bring us First Nations arts and culture here on Wurundjeri Country, policy insights, energy commentators and the rest. And, yeah, my daughter and mum are sitting out there and uh, but also my mother-in-law, looked after my babies when I first started this show and uh, our families, your family, Dylan, Donna's family, we all kind of get to know each other. We do, and... I know. My um, my mum, when she heard you were leaving, she's like, oh, my God, what, are you going to be friends still? <laughs> are yes. we going to be friends still? <laughs> we'll work that out later, right? Okay, okay, okay. That's, yes. not, that's not enough time for that. We, we've bonded. We have um, bonded, yeah. And um, can I say what an absolute privilege it is to have bonded with you and done radio with you for so long on this show, on this incredible station. It's been a completely life-changing experience. Um, so thank you so much for embracing me with open arms and just being an absolute legend. Thank you, Dylan. And you will stay on, which I'm so stoked about, and um, because it's all for the listeners. And I think, you know, my biggest shout out and thanks is to the listeners. Um, thank you. Keep subscribing. It is still Radiothon. Yes. Thanks for the kind words as well and for coming to live events and for listening. That's what it's all about. Keep keep going, Dylan. Yes. Kelly Coulson, you're an absolute star. We'll catch you around the traps. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.